Hey guys, it's Caleb. Welcome to the Fire and Fragrance podcast. This week we're continuing our sermon series on the knowledge of God. This week I'm going to be talking about what is God like, why we should care about the knowledge of God, and we're just going to take a look at a couple biblical examples of why it's important to pursue the knowledge of God and how we can do that more. So excited you've tuned in. Let's jump right in. Good evening. It's good to see you all this evening. Micaiah, it's good to see you. Did you ride here on your motorcycle? Oh, boy. Guys, this evening, such a privilege to be with you all. My name is Caleb. If we haven't met, I have the privilege of serving here in Potch with Fire and Fragrance. I'm from the United States, lived here for about the last year and a half. And tonight, I, I want tonight just to be a continuation of what we were just singing what we were just praying together, this question, who is like the Lord? We just kind of fixated, we kind of halted on that question as Davis and the band did just such an excellent job of leading us. And tonight, that is the question that I want to dive into, that I want to invite us into tonight. This is a question, who is like the Lord, that first rested not on us as, as a people, not on us in this beautiful room, here at ENC, but this is a question that has existed for thousands, thousands of years. And one of the first peoples in a corporate sense that had to wrestle, had to deal with this question of who was like the Lord was the people of Israel when they left the land of Egypt. And so just for a second, I just want you to take a moment. I want you to imagine, use your imagination as we, as we begin tonight. I want you to imagine for a minute that you've been in slavery for 400 years. Your idea and your conception, remember, you don't have the Bible at this point. You're, you're a slave in Egypt. You don't have the book of Romans. You don't have the gospels. You don't have Isaiah. You don't have Exodus yet. You're living in Exodus. All you have are some myths and traditions that for you have been passed down for 400 years in your slave family about this God that promised a land to your ancestor, Abraham. And all of a sudden, this guy comes out of the desert claiming to be led by that God. And so you say, what proof do you have? And he's got a staff and he throws down the staff and it turns into a snake and eats the other snakes that are in the court of Pharaoh. And you're like, I don't know if I fully understand the God that you serve, but you have my attention. <laughs> and then this, this man, begins to do other signs and other miracles. And he goes to the biggest, baddest power in the land, Pharaoh, and he says, I'm about to wreck your house, dude, because you won't let God's people go. And again, you're an Israelite, you're not totally sure if you're ready to follow this Moses guy yet, but you're like, all right, let's see what you got. And all of a sudden, this, this Moses guy starts turning the Nile into blood. Definitely got your attention. He starts calling in plagues of locusts. All right, I've never seen that one before. The sun like turns to darkness and he leads through the, the he kind of leads out in, in the context of these plagues, in the context of these signs, he begins to lead the people of Israel towards a natural conclusion, which is this God that Moses serves is stronger and is more powerful than all the gods of Egypt 
We don't yet really know who this God is, but it seems like he's a lot more bigger and a lot more stronger than all the gods that have kept us in slavery for the last 400 years. I think I'm gonna go with Moses. And so Moses leads the people out of Egypt. And they go and they get to this ocean called the Red Sea. And they get in front of the Red Sea. Moses lifts his arms and the Red Sea parts. The people walk through this, this sea. And then the entire host of Pharaoh is drowned behind them. And so they're like, all right, we weren't fully sure, Moses. We almost, we almost were really angry with you because you, you almost led us to die at the Red Sea. But because your God seems, again, to be stronger, we're going to keep following you. And then this is the next thing Moses says. He goes, okay, guys, God told me that he would meet me at this mountain called Sinai. They're like, when did this happen? He's like, a couple years ago. He said that he'd meet me right here. Like, he'd be right back. So we're going to go to Sinai, and we're going to wait for God. Okay, did I mention that the Israelites at this point number between two to three million people? So Moses is in front of two to three million people. Let's just call it three because, dude, you know they had a lot of kids. (laughs) He's standing in front of three million people and he's like, guys, I promise God is coming to this mountain, okay? So we're here in Potch. We don't have mountains here. There's, There's like... Zero mountains. The closest thing we have to mountains are the Drakensbergs, but those are, those are far away. The closest thing, though, that's here in town would be like my, where my favorite restaurant is, which if you're, friend, you're my friend, you know, Feather Hill, okay? It's just right outside of town, north of town, great breakfast, okay? So let's just say the tallest point in this city over by Feather Hill. Let's say Moses leads three million of us out of the great desert, over to Feather Hill. And he just says, all right, wait here. And then he gives instructions. He says, all right, I'm gonna, we're gonna wait here, we're gonna prepare ourselves, and God himself is gonna show up. They're like, all right. And the question that's going through their mind, the question, if you're an Israelite, and you're standing before that mountain, Mount Sinai, is what is this God going to be like? Who is this God going to be like? Who is like this God? Because we have a lot of conceptions of what gods might be based off of our, off of our experience in Egypt. You're telling us there's a new God? I wonder what he's gonna be like. The question that we're staring at over these next several weeks is the question of what is God like? And the pursuit that we're aiming at in this next, in this series is the knowledge of God. So when we talk about the knowledge of God, that's the question I want you to think of. What is God like? Who is he like? And for most of us, we probably don't have a way of putting them up against other gods. Unless you came out of Egypt, unless you worshiped the gods of Egypt before this, there's, there's not necessarily another kind of God that you, you might have in mind. And so as we look tonight at what God is like, I wanna start off with two reasons that we should care about the knowledge of God. Two reasons. Reason number one, 
We should all care about the knowledge of God. I, I, wanna, I don't know if the slides are gonna work. I might have to read this. If you have your Bibles tonight, you can get your Bibles out. We're gonna go through a few verses. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna assume the slides will not be working. John 17, one through five. Have you guys ever been invited to a party and you're not sure if you wanna go? You know what I mean? What's the first question that you ask when you're invited to a party? Nailed it. Who's gonna be over there? Because who all over there is gonna determine if I'm gonna show up? And are there snacks, right? Like, that's the question. If you're invited into something, you want to know who's going to be on the other end of that invitation. And in John 17, Jesus invites us into the pursuit of the knowledge of God, and he does a great job of letting us know who's there. John 17, one through five. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Skip, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And this is the key part. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus says to the Father, Father, I'm coming back. I want you, I have one request. Would you glorify me with you in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began? So Jesus is letting us know in John 17 that there was a glory that he, he, the Son, the eternal Word of God, there was a glory that he had with the Father from before Genesis 1-1. Genesis negative one. Genesis zero. There was a glory that Jesus had with the Father. I'll keep going. John 17, 24, he goes on. Father, I want those that you've given me. Point to your neighbor. That's us. I want those that you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Everyone say, see my glory. So Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Father, I want the ones that you've given me you guys, me, I want them to be with me and I want them to see my glory, the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. You loved me before Genesis 1.1. So just think about this for a second. There is a reality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit dwelling together in perfect, uncreated glory that has existed since before the beginning of time and before the heavens and the earth were made. And they existed in their glory. You're not gonna catch this. Okay, so imagine Mount Sinai, right? Fire comes down on the mountain. Then imagine Revelation 4, because we're gonna talk about that. Revelation 4, right? The sun and all of his glory the Son of God, Jesus, shining, hair like wool. Okay, and then imagine the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire coming down. All right, these are three really clear pictures that we get of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to imagine all three of those scenes colliding in a scene for eternity past. 
and you have a tiny conception of what it looks like for the glory that I had before the creation of the world. And then the, the son turns to the father and he says, Father, I want them to be with me where I am and I want them to experience that glory with us. How many of you guys think that the father listens to the son's prayers? How many of you think that Jesus wants us to take hold of that prayer? I want to take hold of that prayer. I don't have a clue what he is talking about, but I would love to find out. I'm like, there was an uncreated glory since before the creation. What was that like? Guys, John 17 is an invitation into the knowledge of God. An invitation into that glory and to know that God. Because Jesus said it himself. He wanted it. He wanted us to press into that knowledge. He wanted to press into who he was. So number one, we have an invitation into the knowledge of God corporately. Second reason that I, I really care about the knowledge of God, and it's this. The knowledge of God is gonna be the thing that we're all giving ourselves to and all unfolding for all of eternity in the future. So I'm not talking now about eternity past, I'm talking about eternity in the future. And I know when we think about eternity, like you ever just sit there and you think about infinity and then after like two seconds, it's like looking over a cliff, you're like, whoa, I got dizzy. You know what I mean? You gotta like step back. You're like, I am not made to comprehend eternity. And the second I try to, I get freaked out. Anybody ever gotten freaked out by thinking about eternity? Oh my goodness. Whew. You're like, all right, I'm just gonna be content in my little finite, you know, 80 years. We'll just, we'll, we'll figure it out when we get there. Okay? Guys, if you are in Christ, I have great news. You're gonna be with Christ forever. Everyone say Forever. That's, that is good news. That is absolutely good news. You're gonna be with him forever. What's that gonna be like? Well, I don't know, because I haven't been there with him forever. But when I look at this book, I, I get a couple glimpses of what I think it might be like. So you guys remember in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah kind of gets the heavenly throne room unfolded to him. You guys remember this scene? You guys read this verse before, this chapter? We love this chapter around here. I, I love this chapter, okay? Isaiah 6. If you don't know it, Isaiah is worshiping, and all of a sudden, it's like he has this vision. He's caught up, and he sees God, and he sees him in the temple, and then he sees these creatures, and I want to lock in with the creatures for a second, because he sees these four creatures with six wings. They each have six wings, and they're worshiping Yahweh, they're worshiping the God, the, the God of Israel. And there's a lot we could go into at this scene, but here's the part I wanna key in on. Isaiah sees these, these four creatures, these four seraphim around the throne, and they're singing this song. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It's a pretty good song. We've sung that song around here. I love that song, Okay. Fast forward a couple years. Actually, fast forward a couple centuries. Because by the end of this book, there's a guy named John, John the Beloved. And in the beginning of Revelation, John gets caught up to heaven. And when he goes to heaven, he sees a, a scene that's very similar to the scene that Isaiah saw. In fact, he sees the same thing. He sees these four creatures 
with six wings, and they're all around the throne, just like Isaiah saw, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy. But this time, there's a little bit of a different ending. They are talking about the holy, holy, holy one who was and is and is to come. These two scenes happen 700 years apart. And for 700 years, there have been these four beings looking at one person and the only thing that they get to start out with, that they can start out with every time they go to worship him is holy, holy, holy for 700 years. We, we go, we have these prayer sets in the morning that we, we love to do, right? I love them. And I just think of like the seraphim going to the prayer set that they've never left. But just go with me for a second. I think of the seraphim going to the prayer set that they've never left for all of eternity, for at least 700 years. And they've been singing the Isaiah refrain, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And they do that, just, I don't know, they do it for like, say, 500 years. And then, and then one day, there's like, there's like a moment. You gotta, you gotta picture the moment. There's a moment where the, the, like, the lion head seraphim, because one of them has like the head of a lion. You gotta read your Bible. It's crazy. The one of them has the head of a lion. He like looks over at the flying eagle seraphim. <laughs> Another one of the seraphim, the six wings. And the lion head seraphim is like, Dude, have you ever thought about the eternality of God, the one who was and is and is to come? And the eagle seraphim is like, I have never thought about that. And the eagle seraphim's like, you should do a chorus about that. <laughs> and the lion head seraphim is like, bet. <laughs> the one who was and is and is to come. And it's like got a really catchy melody on it. And, the, and then the other, the, the, the like ox seraphim is like, yeah, I dig that. So then they all start singing it. And then they're singing it for a couple hundred years by the time John shows up. But here's my point. They haven't moved on from the holy, holy, holy part. Why? Because they've been staring at this being who is in of itself holy. They can't move past that aspect of his character. And you gotta think, the living creatures have never experienced being saved. They've never experienced revival. They've never had a healing. They've never needed it. His character and staring at the knowledge of his character is enough for them for 700 years. Come on. The knowledge of God is enough to sing holy, holy, holy for 700 years. And we have been saved from eternal damnation. And some of us have experienced healings. And some of us have seen revival. And some of us have, guys, we get all eternity with him. We get all eternity to go after this thing called the knowledge of God. Amen. So the question that should be before us is how can we know what he's like? Like, what are those seraphim looking at? 
What, what is it about this person? How, how do we get to know him? That should be your next question. Like, I want to know him. Okay, you got me. I want to know him. How do I do that? I remember when I was like third, fourth grade, so I'm young, like nine, 10, I don't know what that is. And, uh, and I had read a, a good segment of the Bible at this point, and I, and I went to my dad. And this is a silly story. I went to my dad, and I was like, Dad, I've read most of the Bible. I think I know all the stories. I think I'm done reading the Bible. I think I got it. I think I got it. My, my wicked little heart. And my dad was like, all right, son, like, super cute, you know? Like, he, he looked at me like I was crazy, and he, he tried to convince me that, like, probably I wasn't done reading the Bible, and I was like, no, I think I got it. Like, I remember most of the stories. I, I read this, and I'm like, yeah, I think I'm, I, I think I'm good, okay? When we talk about the knowledge of God, I don't want us to think about knowledge as in we read this and we're good, or we read this, and because we're good at memorizing, or because we're good at remembering or understanding, like we have the knowledge of God, all right? The thing that, if you were in our prayer meeting this morning, we prayed for this, the thing that I wanna go after, and I kinda just wanna point our hearts at this evening, is revelation of God. Because the only way that we will grow in the knowledge of God and go past simple head knowledge is if we experience this thing called revelation. Revelation, the difference between knowledge and revelation is the difference between knowing something in my, in my brain and knowing something in my heart. The difference between knowledge and revelation is I just told you guys that God is in heaven right now being worshiped by possibly infinite beings with six wings and eyes all over their bodies and you all just like believed that, like that was no big deal. But in about an hour, some of you guys are going to get revelation. Probably less. If the band's listening. So. How do you get revelation? Ephesians 1, 16 through 17. Paul talks about this. He prays for this. He says, while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I'm gonna read that again. He's praying in his prayer life. Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus and Colossae. He's praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in what? In the knowledge of God. So this is what he's saying. Paul is effectively saying, guys, I want you to have revelation of God. I know, remember, who's talking? It's Paul, like the best missionary of all time, like an incredible writer, okay speaker by his own admittance, but incredible apostle, right? He's saying, I have to pray for you that you would understand the knowledge of God and that somehow God would give you revelation by his spirit. Because in and of myself, I am inadequate to be able to convey the truths, the eternal mysteries of the gospel to you, church of Ephesus. I can't do it. I'm not good enough as a communicator, and you're not good enough as a listener. We need something outside ourselves, something other than called the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and unless he comes, we are up a creek without a paddle, meaning we're stuck, we're not going anywhere. We are absolutely not going anywhere. He's saying it takes God to know God. 
You cannot know God without the Spirit of God. It's kind of, it kind of doesn't make sense, but it totally makes sense. You can't know me unless you know me. You don't know Caleb unless, hi, I'm Caleb, unless we know each other. You can't know the Spirit of God unless you meet the Spirit of God. So Paul is praying, and he's telling us to pray with them. Guys, I really need you to have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And I'm praying that you get it by the mercy of God himself. It's the only way you're going to get there. We all know what a spirit of revelation feels like. Because you're dry-eyed one second, and you're misty-eyed the next. You're reading a, a, a Bible, your Bible in a dull, boring, quiet time one second, and then the next, next second, this, these pages are on fire with conviction. You're listening to the preacher, and you're about to fall asleep one second, the next second, you've never felt more alive. That's the spirit of wisdom and revelation. You all know what this feels like. Most of us, I hope, in this room have experienced this at one time or another. That thing, when, when knowledge drops into your heart, that's called revelation. I can't give you that. You can't take it. It comes from the spirit of alone. However, God has, by his grace, given us two things that I wanna submit to you tonight, two things that I believe will help us on our journey towards obtaining, acquiring, and keeping that spirit of revelation in our lives. Can I share with you guys these two things? I believe, if we look at the whole scripture, if we go, if we go Genesis to Revelation, this, this whole book, there's two things that I wanna highlight that God has given us as, a, as the body. He's given us as a way to get to know him. And these two things, I'm just gonna tell you right off the bat. These two things are work and worship. Work and worship. And I'm gonna prove it to you. So we'll start in Genesis. Everyone grab your Bibles, turn if you have them, or on your phone, go to Genesis 2. Yes, it's working. Praise God. Genesis 2, 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. All right, everybody say put. Or put, however you say it. Okay, so this word, we look at Genesis. All right, God takes man, he takes him, and he puts him, or puts him, in a garden. Don't laugh, it's a holy word. What this word means, I always, I read this and I think like, I think like God like picked up Adam by like the scruff of his neck, like a, like a mom, you know, cat does with her little kittens and he just like grabs him and he just drops him. Adam's like, where am I? Why is there a garden? But the word is actually something that, that has a deeper significance. This word that's used when God puts Adam in, in the garden, is actually the word that's used uh, in Exodus and in several other places to describe objects of worship that are placed before the Lord. So when they put the manna before the Lord in Exodus, same word. They're placing something. It's like they're setting aside something as holy. They're setting aside something that's not common. So God takes Adam, and in a holy manner, he places him in a garden called Eden. And then he tells him to do something. He says, Adam, what I'm gonna have you do is I'm gonna have you cultivate and keep this garden. Now the word for cultivate there is the word that we would generally see used as the word for work. Everyone say work. work. 
All right. Important thought to remember that work was never part of the curse that God laid upon mankind after Genesis 3. Work was never part of the curse. God said that the work would get harder and that labor would get more intense and the snake would crawl on his belly, but work was never part of the curse. Work was actually something that God gave to Adam in the very beginning as a way to relate with Adam and labor alongside Adam. God goes, Adam, I gave you this garden, and now what I'm gonna have you do is I'm gonna have you cultivate it, and I'm gonna have you keep it. Meaning this, because just think about this for a second. God could have made Adam and Eve any way that he wanted and done anything he wanted to do with them. And he could have let them know him in any way that he, he wanted. You know what I mean? So when you think about the knowledge of God, like God doesn't take Adam and like, all right, Adam, I want you to sit here in a desk and I want you to like read all this stuff and you're gonna get to know me. He doesn't do that. I'm not saying that's bad. That's just not what he does. He also doesn't like make a big mega church. He puts like Adam and Eve in the middle pew at the front row and he stands on the stage. He's like, all right, now you're gonna know me. That's not what he does. He says, the way you're gonna get to know me is by cultivating something that's really boring, something that takes time to grow, something that's actually gonna take quite a bit of effort, but in the midst of it, I'm gonna meet with you and you with me and we're gonna get to know each other. There's something about cultivation and work that God says is part of the process of getting to know him. If I, if I could summarize it, I'll just say it this way. When God wanted to know Adam, he gave him a job. And he said, I'll do it with you. When God wanted to know Adam, he gave him a job. And he said, I will do it with you. Here's why this is beautiful. Not everybody in this room can go be in a prayer room 25 hours a day. Not everybody, every, many of us in this room, we work a lot of different jobs. We have... We have PhDs in here. We have new parents in this room. We have people that do all kinds of things from all across this community, and it's beautiful and it's amazing. And for some of us, we might feel that the knowledge of God is too unobtainable. It's too lofty. It's, it's almost like, dude, I don't have time for that. Like, how am I supposed to fit the knowledge of God into my schedule? I work 26 hours a day. Like, how in the world am I supposed to fit that in? My life is full. And what I'm telling you is that God loves your work, and he loves what you're giving yourself to, and he says, I want to meet you inside of that thing. The day in, the day out, the, the mundane, the things that you've been called to do, he says, I love it, I've blessed it, it's part of how I've made you, and you can know me in it. You can know me in the work. And what's interesting is that this work, and some of you might know this, this word for work is really, really related to the word worship. And many of us, and we're not, I could spend a lot of time talking about that, but, but here's what I want you to know. Your work is pleasing to the Lord. It's worshipful. You can work in such a way that is worshipful to God. There's a lot of ways that we worship, but that is one of them. Second thing. One of the second means by which God has given us to know him is, is worship in the sense that we just experienced it a few minutes ago, in the sense that when we were singing, we were praising. Because I don't want to, I don't want to diminish that because it's actually really central to the storyline of the Bible and it's really central 
to our eternal lives. I'm not saying we're gonna worship like the living creatures do for all of eternity. Has anybody ever wondered why we're gonna beat those swords into plowshares? Has anybody ever thought about that? Like, are we gonna be waving our plowshares around the throne? No, you're gonna be working. You're gonna be working. Some of you have never thought about that. I can see your faces. You're like, whoa, no, whoa yeah, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna dance around the throne with a plow. That'd be weird. That'd be so strange. But worship is part of the means by which God has given us to see him and to know him and to experience revelation. And one of the clearest examples I can give of this is the book of Revelation. So I told you, we looked through the whole Bible, we see this all play out. From Genesis, one bookend, to Revelation, the other bookend. In Revelation, we have a man named John, John the Beloved, not John the, the Baptist. John the Beloved, who on the island of Patmos, as an elderly man, is taken up this tiny Mediterranean island where he's serving out his exile and prison sentence, he's taken up in the spirit into heaven and he experiences something that he's never experienced in his decades of life. And he goes to the throne room and in the throne room, he sees there's a lot of things happening. There's elders and angels, seraphim, worshiping God. And it's like there's a sea of glass. There's a rainbow that's green. It's a very strange thing that John is seeing. And one in the middle of the throne is sitting. And John, there's a couple things that are happening, but this is what I want you to catch. John has never been to this place before. As an old man, he is still experiencing new places of worship. That's good news for all of you young people in this room, myself included. In our youth unto our old age, we can always be experiencing new places of worship and going to places we've never been before. And so in, John, it's in Revelation chapter 5, I'd love for you to turn there. Revelation chapter 5, I don't know if we have it. Oh, yes. Revelation 5. John says this, he says, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, John, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Next slide. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, and the elders, a lamb standing as if slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes. Most scholars believe, many scholars believe, that John the Beloved was probably Jesus' cousin. Have you ever heard that before? I didn't know that until recently. I was pretty mad when I found that out. I was like, what? Why has no one ever talked about this? highly, highly likely that he's his cousin, okay? Think of your cousin. Think of a cousin that you have. Think of how long you've known them from when they were little to the present. If there's a possibility that John knew Jesus, Jesus' entire life, and let's say even if he didn't, he knew him for the most, the three most significant years of his life. That means like he knew how Jesus chewed his food he knew, like, if Jesus snored, because they were with each other, like, all the time. Like, he knew what Jesus was like when he was, when he was before the crowd and when he was in private. He, at one time even, 
gone up this mountain with Jesus and he had seen like his hair glow. So whatever that was, though, is different from what John is seeing in Revelation chapter 5. And it's in the context of this worship scene of the seraphim and the elders and all these angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's in the context of a worship scene of worship that John begins to get revelation of the knowledge of God and who Jesus is. What's the first thing? What's the first thing he's told? Behold, go back to that first slide. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Do you know that the lion of the tribe of Judah is a phrase that goes back to Genesis 49, back to the very beginning of the Bible? This was a blessing that Jacob had given to his son, Judah. And he said, Judah, my son, the scepter is not going to depart from your line. In fact, I see, I see a lion cub, Judah. I see a, a lion cub coming from you. A whelp is what the NASB says, a lion whelp. And I see this lion coming from you. And until the, the one of peace, until Shiloh comes, the scepter will not depart from your line. John is in the context of worship, and he gets it. Oh, my gosh. All the way back in Genesis 49, a revelation of the knowledge of God that he had never known. He had never said that before. No one had said that to him. The root of David. John's looking. He's like, oh, my gosh. Genesis 3, the seed that was promised to come from the woman the Isaiah 11, root of Jesse. The Isaiah 6, the stump. There's going to remain a seed, and out of that seed, there's going to come something else. It's the root of David. It's the thing that God promised David in 2 Samuel. I've read about this my whole life, but I never got it. And now I'm getting it. And then he sees a lamb, and he thinks back. To when he was a young man and he heard John the Baptist say, Behold, by that Jordan River, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's decades later that he's finally understanding what has been trying to get him his whole life. Where knowledge becomes revelation is in the context of one of the most beautiful and specific worship scenes that we get in the whole Bible. Are you guys getting this? He is understanding who Jesus is in the context of night and day worship. It's revelation that he didn't have before he was weeping. But now that he's weeping and now that he's with the Lord, he gets it. Who is like the Lord? Guys, John had seen Jesus. He had never seen Jesus like this. In all of his life, he had never seen him like this. The goal of asking for a spirit of wisdom and revelation is you get knowledge that you didn't have before, that you see God in a way that you didn't before, and it changes the entire rest of your life. One word from his mouth silences a thousand questions. One encounter with this living God changes the trajectory of a thousand lives. Many of us have experienced this in this room, and I'm telling you right now, you're not done. 
you're not done with the knowledge of God. You're not done experiencing the revelation of who this God is. So the question that is before us, the question that we're gonna dive into over these next several weeks is this. If I were to boil it all down, this conversation about the knowledge of God, this is the question. So what is he like? What's he like? You've been telling us how to know him. You've told us a few things about him. But if you were to sit with me, you would know what I'm like. If you were to sit with the person next to you for an hour, you would learn not just information about them, you would learn their personality. You would learn what they're like. So the question before us, and this is the question I wanna, I wanna land on tonight, is what is he like? I don't know if we have it on the slides, but just turn in your Bibles to Exodus 19. Because this is the kind of the question that we started with. Go back to the people of Israel in your mind for, for a few minutes. Put yourself in their shoes. Take away everything I just said. Just pretend you can scrub it from your memory. Put yourself, empathize with the people of Israel recently saved from slavery out of bondage in Egypt for 400 years. You don't have John's revelation. You don't have Isaiah's revelation. You don't have any of the prophets. You have none of the law, almost a fraction of the law at this point. What do you have? You have your knowledge of the gods of Egypt. Remember, you're coming out of a land and a culture that is soaked in religion. The gods of Egypt were not nice gods. You don't have to do much research to know that. The gods of Egypt were cruel and were demanding and were taskmasters who forced them to build things and who put them in slavery. And the gods of Canaan, where they all knew they were headed, were way worse the gods of Canaan would demand your children as a sacrifice. Pick your God. Which one do you want? You want the God who's going to enslave you for 400 years? Or you want the God who's going to take your firstborn kid? Your choice. And they're caught between these two choices. And they come to this mountain called Sinai. And Moses says, prepare yourself for a new God. And if you're an Israelite, I feel bad for you. I, I feel bad. Because in this moment, you're like, what is this God going to be like? Is he going to want our firstborn? Exodus 19, 13. You shall set bounds for all the people all around, saying, beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountains shall surely be put to death. The Israelites hear the command of Moses as they prepare for the coming of Yahweh to Mount Sinai. They hear that command and they say, yep, that lines up. Mm -hmm. We're used to gods that demand things of us and if we disobey, we die. Yep, that totally lines up. That sounds like some of the gods we just came from actually. It sounds really similar to our knowledge and our conception of who God is. And so three days later, here's what happens. Exodus 19, starting, I believe, in verse 16. Nope, I'm just going to read this. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
On the third day, as the morning dawns, there's thunder and there's lightning. And the people go outside their tents, they wake up, and they look. And there's a cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. Okay, uh, we had a really loud lightning storm yesterday and a couple in the last week. Okay, so imagine you wake up tomorrow morning and there is a cloud above Feather Hill. Just go with this. There's a cloud above Feather Hill. And the cloud is not moving. And there's lightning coming out of the cloud. I'm not talking about like baby lightning. I'm talking about like real intense, loud lightning that scares little children and makes them cry. I'm talking about like thunder and lightning. I'm talking about a cloud that you can't miss it. Like it is dark, it is scary, it is ominous. And then Moses is like, all right guys, we're gonna go to Feather Hill. What? You wanna take us into that thing? Are you kidding me? He's like, nope, that's where we're going. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered with thunder. Okay, so this whole mountain is now not just smoking, it's on fire. Sorry. It's on fire. Feather Hill is getting torched. My favorite breakfast. Up in flames. And God hasn't even spoke yet. He hasn't even sp spoke. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. <laughs> Guys, when we talk about heaven coming to earth, we have to know what we're asking for. Let heaven come. Are you ready for your favorite mountain to become a barbecue? Like, that was a good mountain. I don't know what we're going to do with it now. That thing's done. That's roasted. Are you ready for your favorite stuff to just go up in flames? Because that's what happened here. We know that because when Moses goes up the mountain, he's going to go up a couple times. He's going to go up the mountain. He's going to meet with God. He's going to get the Ten Commandments. He's going to come down. Then he's going to go back up again. He's going to take some dudes with him. And they're actually going to go up to heaven. They're going to eat on the sapphire sea. Don't ask me about that. I do not know. Then he comes back down. The people make covenant with God. And this is what they do. They say, we will be your people. You're going to be our God. We're binding ourselves to you. You're obviously way more powerful than the gods that we just came from. You're obviously way more powerful than Pharaoh and the only powers that we've ever known. So we'll follow you. You're scary. We're not going to mess with that. And so then a third time, Moses goes back up the mountain. And this time, the reason that he's got to go back up the mountain is this. While he was away on one of those trips up the mountain, the people, they decided to make an idol. They decided to make a golden calf. Imagine if we in this room decided to make a golden calf right now and worship it, and we could see 
the cloud on top of Feather Hill burning with thundering and lightning. We could hear the reverberations. We could feel the earthquake, and we're making a golden calf. That's what the people of Israel do. That is bad. Because now Moses has to go back up the mountain into that dark cloud where God is standing on a mountain. And here's what's going to happen. God is going to hold court. Now, you're back down. You're with the Israelites. You're thinking, oh boy. Because you know, remember, the gods of Egypt. You know the gods of Canaan. And you know what happens if you disobey any of those gods. Like for real. Like the Red Sea and, and, and the Exodus, that was like a month ago. Like, you still have the blood of the Passover lamb on your tunic. You can still hear the cry. I'm being serious. You can hear the cries of the mothers of Egypt, and they're mourning their firstborn. That's fresh trauma for you. That's not, a re- that's not an old memory. That's fresh. You still remember what it looked like when that ocean parted and then covered the entire army of Pharaoh. Why? Because a people had resisted the lordship and the power of Yahweh. And now you've made an altar and a calf and you've worshipped it? And Moses has gone up the mountain? If you were standing at the foot of that mountain with the thundering and the lightning... You are scared because Egypt is burning behind you and there's a mountain burning in front of you. And in the middle is you. You understand what the wrath of God looks like. You understand what the punishment of God actually is. It's not secondhand knowledge. It's firsthand account. I just lived through it in Egypt. And now we've committed the same sin as them. And it's in this context in Exodus 34 that Moses goes up the mountain. Exodus 34, I hope this is right, four through seven. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses got up early in the morning and he went to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took the two stone tablets in his hand. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and true, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin. When Moses comes back down the mountain, it is in the context of the largest moral failure the Israelite people have ever had. And it is also the greatest corporate revelation the people of Israel have ever had. You see, God had revealed his character and nature to people and to families up until this point. He had never revealed this part of his character to three million people. A corporate revelation in the context of worship, awe, and reverence, and in the context 
of work as Moses led these people. The greatest revelation of a God. Who is he? He's compassionate. You just made an idol. It was the one, it was the first thing I told you not to do. And it was the first thing you did. And now you want to know who I am? I'm compassionate. I'm not like the gods of Egypt and Canaan. I'm not like Pharaoh. I'm not who, I, who you thought I was going to be. And when Moses comes down the mountain, are there consequences? Absolutely. But when he comes down the mountain, he's not coming with the backhand of God. He's coming, guys. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. And guess what? He forgives iniquity. Like what all of you just did. This was the best news that Israel could have ever received. Because without this revelation of the knowledge of God and his compassion and his kindness, they're all dead. And you and I are probably not here today. Without this revelation of the knowledge of who he is, we don't get the rest of the book. Who is like the Lord? He's compassionate and altogether just. He's merciful and he is the judge. He is all of these things in one great package. This is the God that we come to. So I want to invite the worship band back up here. Because the next thing that Moses does in Exodus 34. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Worship and work with it is how we get the revelation of the knowledge of God. But I, guys, I'm telling you the truth tonight. The only natural response to the knowledge of God is worship. This is the beautiful calling that we find ourselves caught up in that we're gonna do for all of eternity. We're gonna work and we're gonna worship. And when we get more revelation of him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when we catch a glimpse of who he is in a new way, we're going to go right back into worship. We're going to go right back into loving him forever and ever and ever. This is what we're called to. We don't get tired of it because the, the, the orientation of our worship is not around a human. It's not around a finite being. It's around someone who is eternal. Therefore, our worship, therefore, our love, therefore, our crying out will be eternal. We have not come to a mountain like the Israelites did that we cannot touch. No, 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 no. We've come to a heavenly mountain, Mount Zion. We've come to something we can touch. We've come to something we can see. We've come to one who John said, he said, that which we saw, that which we heard, we could proclaim to you. So tonight, the only altar call that we have is the altar call of worship. The only response that would be befitting of this message and where we're headed over the next few weeks is that of worship. I want to invite us to stand. I want you to posture yourself for worship in whatever way you want to. Father, we have come to you tonight. God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses and the people of God. We have come to you tonight as one 
who is not far off as one who is not unwilling to bear with our sorrows and our iniquities. There are some in this room tonight who you feel far off because of your sorrow and your suffering. Some of us tonight in this room feel like our tragedy and our trauma and our grief have separated us and disqualified us from the knowledge of God. And I'm telling you tonight, Isaiah 53, he is the man of sorrows. He is the one in whom we rejected and he has come close. He is Shiloh, the one of peace. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who bears with our hurt. For some of us tonight, we believe that our iniquities have separated us from the grace of God. And though there are consequences, I tell you the truth, he is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. You are not far from the kingdom of heaven.